Part three of Chapter ten of Book one of the Wealth of Nations. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Escalera. The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith. Part three of Chapter ten of Book one of Wages and Profit in the Different Employments of Labor and Stock. Part two inequalities occasioned by the policy of europe such are the inequalities in the whole of the advantages and disadvantages of the different employments of labour and stock which the defect of any of the three requisites above mentioned must occasion even where there is the most perfect liberty but the policy of europe by not leaving things at perfect liberty occasions other inequalities of much greater importance it does this chiefly in the three following ways first by restraining the competition in some employments to a smaller number than would otherwise be disposed to enter into them secondly by increasing it in others beyond what it naturally would be and thirdly by obstructing the free circulation of labour and stock both from employment to employment and from place to place first the policy of europe occasions a very important inequality in the whole of the advantages and disadvantages of the different employments of labour and stock by restraining the competition in some employments to a smaller number than might otherwise be disposed to enter into them the exclusive privileges of corporations are the principal means it makes use of for this purpose the exclusive privilege of an incorporated trade necessarily restrains the competition in the town where it is established to those who are free of the trade to have served an apprenticeship in the town under a master properly qualified is commonly the necessary requisite for obtaining this freedom the by-laws of the corporation regulate sometimes the number of apprentices which any master is allowed to have and almost always the number of years which each apprentice is obliged to serve the intention of both regulations is to restrain the competition to a much smaller number than might otherwise be disposed to enter into the trade the limitation of the number of apprentices restrains it directly a long term of apprenticeship restrains it more indirectly but as effectually by increasing the expense of education in sheffield no master cutler can have more than one apprentice at a time by by-law of the corporation in norfolk and norwich no master weaver can have more than two apprentices under pain of forfeiting five pounds a month to the king no master hatter can have more than two apprentices anywhere in england or in the english plantations under pain of forfeiting five pounds a month half to the king and half to him who shall sue in any court of record both these regulations though they have been confirmed by a public law of the kingdom are evidently dictated by the same corporation spirit which enacted the by-law of sheffield the silk weavers in London had scarce been incorporated a year when they enacted a by-law restraining any master from having more than two apprentices at a time. It required a particular act of Parliament to rescind this by-law. Seven years seem anciently to have been all over Europe the usual term established for the duration of apprenticeships in the greater part of incorporated trades. All such incorporations were anciently called universities, which, indeed, is the proper Latin name for any incorporation whatever. The University of Smiths, the university of tailors etc are expressions which we commonly meet with in the old charters of ancient towns when those particular incorporations which are now peculiarly called universities were first established the term of years which it was necessary to study in order to obtain the degree of master of arts appears evidently to have been copied from the term of apprenticeship in common trades of which the incorporations were much more ancient 
as to have wrought seven years under a master properly qualified, was necessary in order to entitle my person to become a master, and to have himself apprentices in a common trade. So to have studied seven years under a master properly qualified, was necessary to entitle him to become a master, teacher, or doctor, words anciently synonymous, in the liberal arts, and to have scholars or apprentices, words likewise originally synonymous, to study under him. By the fifth of Elizabeth, commonly called the statute of apprenticeship, it was enacted that no person should, for the future, exercise any trade, craft, or mystery at that time exercised in England, unless he had previously served to it an apprenticeship of seven years at least, and what before had been the by-law of many particular corporations, became in England the general and public law of all trades carried on in market towns. For though the words of the statute are very general, and seem plainly to include the whole kingdom, by interpretation its operation has been limited to market towns. It having been held that, in country villages, a person may exercise several different trades, though he has not served a seven years apprenticeship to each, they being necessary for the conveniency of the inhabitants, and the number of people frequently not being sufficient to supply each with a particular set of hands. By a strict interpretation of the words, too, the operation of this statute has been limited to those trades which were established in England before the fifth of Elizabeth, and has never been extended to such as have been introduced since that time. This limitation has given occasion to several distinctions, which, considered as rules of police, appear as foolish as can well be imagined. It has been adjudged, for example, that a coachmaker can neither himself make nor employ journeymen to make his coach wheels, but must buy them of a master wheelwright, this latter trade having been exercised in England before the fifth of Elizabeth. But a wheelwright, though he has never served an apprenticeship to a coachmaker, may either himself make or employ journeymen to make coaches, the trade of a coachmaker not being within the statute, because not exercised in England at the time when it was made. The manufacturers of Manchester, Birmingham, and Wolverhampton are many of them upon this account not within the statute, not having been exercised in England before the fifth of Elizabeth. In France, the duration of apprenticeships is different in different towns, and in different trades. In Paris, five years is the term required in a great number, but before any person can be qualified to exercise the trade as a master, he must, in many of them, serve five years more as a journeyman. During this latter term he is called the companion of his master, and the term itself is called his companionship. In Scotland there is no general law which regulates universally the duration of apprenticeships. The term is different in different corporations. Where it is long, a part of it may generally be redeemed by paying a small fine. In most towns, too, a very small fine is sufficient to purchase the freedom of any corporation. The weavers of linen and hempen cloth, the principal manufacturers of the country, as well as all other artificers subservient to them, wheel-makers, reel-makers, etc., may exercise their trades in any town corporate without paying any fine. In all towns corporate, all persons are free to sell butcher's meat upon any lawful day of the week. Three years is, in Scotland, a common term of apprenticeship, even in some very nice trades, and, in general, I know of no country in Europe in which corporation laws are so little oppressive. The property which every man has in his own labor, as it is the original foundation of all other property, so it is the most sacred and inviolable. The patrimony of a poor man lies in the strength and dexterity of his hands, and to hinder him from employing this strength and dexterity in what manner he thinks proper, without injury to his neighbor, is a plain violation of this most sacred property. It is a manifest encroachment upon the just liberty, both of the workmen and of those who might be disposed to employ him. 
as it hinders the one from working at what he thinks proper, so it hinders the others from employing whom they think proper. To judge whether he is fit to be employed may surely be trusted to the discretion of the employers whose interest it so much concerns. The affected anxiety of the lawgiver, lest they should employ an improper person, is evidently as impertinent as it is oppressive. The institution of long apprenticeships can give no security that insufficient workmanship shall not frequently be exposed to public sale. When this is done, it is generally the effect of fraud and not of inability, and the longest apprenticeship can give no security against fraud. Quite different regulations are necessary to prevent this abuse. The sterling mark upon plate, and the stamps upon linen and woolen cloth, give the purchaser much greater security than any statute of apprenticeship. He generally looks at these, but never thinks it worth while to inquire whether the workman had served a seven years apprenticeship. The institution of long apprenticeships has no tendency to form young people to industry. A journeyman who works by the piece is likely to be industrious because he derives a benefit from every exertion of his industry. An apprentice is likely to be idle, and almost always is so, because he has no immediate interest to be otherwise. In the inferior employments, the sweets of labor consist altogether in the recompense of labor. They who are soonest in a condition to enjoy the sweets of it are likely soonest to conceive a relish for it, and to acquire the early habit of industry. A young man naturally conceives an aversion to labor, when for a long time he receives no benefit from it. The boys who are put out apprentices from public charities are generally bound for more than the usual number of years, and they generally turn out very idle and worthless. Apprenticeships were altogether unknown to the ancients. The reciprocal duties of master and apprentice make a considerable article in every modern code. The Roman law is perfectly silent with regard to them. I know no Greek or Latin word, I might venture, I believe, to assert that there is none, which expresses the idea we now annex to the word apprentice, a servant bound to work at a particular trade for the benefit of a master during a term of years upon condition that the master shall teach him that trade. Long apprenticeships are altogether unnecessary. The arts, which are much superior to common trades, such as those of making clocks and watches, contain no such mystery as to require a long course of instruction. The first invention of such beautiful machines, indeed, and even that of some of the instruments employed in making them, must no doubt have been the work of deep thought and a long time, and may justly be considered as among the happiest efforts of human ingenuity. But when both have been fairly invented, and are well understood, to explain to any young man, in the completest manner, how to apply the instruments, and how to construct the machines, cannot well require more than the lessons of a few weeks, perhaps those of a few days might be sufficient. In the common mechanic trades, those of a few days might certainly be sufficient. The dexterity of hand, indeed, even in common trades, cannot be acquired without much practice and experience but a young man would practice with much more diligence and attention if from the beginning he wrought as a journeyman being paid in proportion to the little work which he could execute and paying in his turn for the materials which he might sometimes spoil through awkwardness and inexperience his education would generally in this way be more effectual and always less tedious and expensive the master indeed would be a loser he would lose all the wages of the apprentice which he now saves for seven years together in the end, perhaps, the apprentice himself would be a loser. In a trade so easily learnt, he would have more competitors, and his wages, when he came to be a complete workman, would be much less than at present. The same increase of competition would reduce the profits of the masters, as well as the wages of workmen. The trades, the crafts, the mysteries, would all be losers. But the public would be a gainer, the work of all artificers coming in this way much cheaper to market.' 
It is to prevent this reduction of price, and consequently of wages and profit, by restraining that free competition which would most certainly occasion it, that all corporations, and the greater part of corporation laws, have been established. In order to erect a corporation, no other authority in ancient times was requisite, in many parts of Europe, but that of the town corporate in which it was established. In England, indeed, a charter from the king was likewise necessary. But this prerogative of the crown seems to have been reserved rather for extorting money from the subject than for the defence of the common liberty against such oppressive monopolies. Upon paying a fine to the king, the charter seems generally to have been readily granted, and when any particular class of artificers or traders thought proper to act as a corporation without a charter, such adultering guilds, as they were called, were not always disfranchised upon that account, but obliged to fine annually to the king for permission to exercise their usurped privileges. The immediate inspection of all corporations and of the bylaws which they might think proper to enact for their own government belonged to the town corporate in which they were established, and whatever discipline was exercised over them proceeded commonly not from the king, but from that greater incorporation of which those subordinate ones were only parts or members. The government of towns corporate was altogether in the hands of traders and artificers, and it was the manifest interest of every particular class of them to prevent the market from being overstocked, as they commonly express it, with their own particular species of industries, which is in reality to keep it always understocked. Each class was eager to establish regulations proper for this purpose, and, provided it was allowed to do so, was willing to consent that every other class should do the same. In consequence of such regulations, indeed, each class was obliged to buy the goods they had occasion for from every other within the town, somewhat dearer than they otherwise might have done. But, in recompense, they were enabled to sell their own just as much dearer, so that, so far, it was as broad as long, as they say, and in the dealings of the different classes within the town with one another, none of them were losers by these regulations." but in their dealings with the country they were all great gainers and in these latter dealings consists the whole trade which supports and enriches every town every town draws its whole subsistence and all the materials of its industry from the country it pays for these chiefly in two ways first by sending back to the country a part of those materials wrought up and manufactured in which case their price is augmented by the wages of the workmen and the profits of their masters or immediate employers Secondly, by sending to it a part both of the rude and manufactured produce, either of other countries or of distant parts of the same country, imported into the town, in which case, too, the original price of those goods is augmented by the wages of the carriers or sailors, and by the profits of the merchants who employ them. In what is gained upon the first of those branches of commerce consists the advantage which the town makes by its manufactures, in what is gained upon the second the advantage of its inland and foreign trade the wages of the workmen, and the profits of their different employers, make up the whole of what is gained upon both. Whatever regulations, therefore, tend to increase those wages and profits beyond what they otherwise would be, tend to enable the town to purchase, with a smaller quantity of its labor, the produce of a greater quantity of the labor of the country. They give the traders and artificers in the town an advantage over the landlords, farmers, and laborers in the country, and break down that natural equality which would otherwise take place in the commerce which is carried on between them. The whole annual produce of the labor of the society is annually divided between those two different sets of people. By means of those regulations, a greater share of it is given to the inhabitants of the town than would otherwise fall to them, and a less to those of the country. The price which the town really pays for the provisions and materials annually imported into it is the quantity of manufactures and other goods annually exported from it. The dearer the latter are sold, the cheaper the former are bought. 
the industry of the town becomes more, and that of the country less, advantageous. That the industry which is carried on in towns is, everywhere in Europe, more advantageous than that which is carried on in the country, without entering into any very nice computations, we may satisfy ourselves by one very simple and obvious observation. In every country of Europe we find at least a hundred people who have acquired great fortunes from small beginnings, by trade and manufactures, the industry which properly belongs to towns, for one who has done so by that which properly belongs to the country, the raising of rude produce by the improvement and cultivation of land. Industry, therefore, must be better rewarded, the wages of labor and the profits of stock must evidently be greater in the one situation than in the other, but stock and labor naturally seek the most advantageous employment. They naturally, therefore, resort as much as they can to the town and desert the country. End of Book 1, Chapter 10, Part 3